This edition of the Supercluster podcast is powered by Dropbox. Here at Supercluster headquarters in New York City, we use Dropbox every day to produce our content, including this podcast. Hello, space fans, and welcome to another episode of the Supercluster podcast. On this episode, we're going to be exploring the brains inside the computer. We'll be having a discussion about artificial intelligence and machine learning with a special guest who is something of an expert in the field. She'll be providing us with some insights on how we got here, where we're going, and what we can expect from AI in the future. As you know, I'm Jamie, and I'm here with Robin, who will introduce you to our guest. Hello, everyone. I know it's been a couple of weeks here on the Supercluster podcast since you've heard from Jamie and I. We are back today because uh, it's a new year. Happy New Year to everyone. Uh, we hope everyone is well and safe. We are starting our new year here at Supercluster by scratching an itch. And that itch is what is going on with artificial intelligence? We keep hearing about it in our field here in space exploration through the lens of searching for exoplanets and searching for intelligent signals. And, and I think searching is the wrong word. I think where machine learning comes into play is looking through data, parsing data, looking through information we've collected over the years through a machine's eyes and through a machine's processing power. Uh, I've asked uh, Christina Libby here today, who is the chief science officer of Hypergiant, an incredible company that we've written about here at Supercluster. They are exploring extraordinary technologies that we've only dreamed about in science fiction. And I'll, I'll let Christina describe what Hypergiant's doing here. But if you're a listener of the Supercluster podcast, you know that we've had their CEO, Ben Lamb, on the show. He's one of our favorite guests, one of my favorite people. He's a, an entrepreneur and someone who you know, does wear this kind of Tony Stark-ish type hat in our industry. He's thinking about what's next. He's thinking about what's new. Christina, you uh, work with Ben. Tell us and our audience, or I should say remind us, what is it that Hypergiant is doing right now? Yeah. Um, hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. Hypergiant as a company essentially uses artificial intelligence and emerging technologies to look at the areas of space, defense, and critical infrastructure. And those those areas were pretty specifically chosen because they have so much interconnectedness and advancements made in any one of those fields kind of helps the other field to grow and change. Ben spends a lot of time thinking about sort of what he would call like the elements of civilization, right? And what those are, are the boring base things that we need to have a nation and to protect it and to help it expand. And so I think that's that's really where the core of the company is focused. And, and our technology has sort of spanned everything from cool and interesting, like interplanetary internet, to um, a lot of the work we're doing now, which is around using artificial intelligence, essentially connecting many of the different AI services providers in a network so that customers have an easier sort of plug and play way to develop all of their solutions that doesn't have to be on a specific cloud provider. So that's a little bit more, I think, 
generally boring than something quite cool like interplanetary internet. But what that's about is actually really creating the very foundation of helping the industry so that we can actually expand exponentially in our use of artificial intelligence. So what you're telling me is you guys are creating infrastructure to allow other people to utilize AI. Yeah. Think about it maybe like a city, right? So right now there's like 300 different companies who build AI solutions for enterprise businesses, right? Mm -hmm. And companies have to, right now, sort of build interconnected tissue between those different offerings. And then there are sort of big moat-like businesses like Amazon, where, you know, they want you to do everything in their little kingdom. But the problem is you don't want to be stuck in a kingdom, right? Because you maybe want what some of those other services offer in different areas. And so what we're actually building at the moment is sort of like the roads or the electrical wires that connect all of those different businesses and those sort of big big behemoths in the industry together so that it's a lot easier for businesses to, you know, take one small tool from a specific company and then be able to use it on any cloud provider that they want or um, sort of in any edge scenario that they're interested in. Cool. So it, yeah, it will be incredibly useful in the future. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason it's so important is that it democratizes sort of the process of building AI mm-hmm. and allowing people to think about and scale that in different ways. That is really, really useful because that helps us to ensure that we're having better models, that we are engaging in better processes, and that we ultimately end up with better, better outputs than we have right now. It sounds like there's a lot of, is the word sharing appropriate? Is there a lot of technology and idea sharing in this process? Between different organizations and companies? I mean, right now, no. Right now, everyone is in this race to sort of build moats around their product offerings. But think about Squarespace, right? Or Wix or any of those tools that really help to make it really easy for you to make a website, right? Mm -hmm. Those came about because a bunch of different companies provided a bunch of different services. And then Squarespace was like, wait, what if we just made it easy for people to integrate their email offering, integrate their e-commerce, integrate Mm -hmm. their SEO solutions into one spot so that businesses of all sizes could grow and scale a web offering. It's more of a consolidation of this approach. Exactly. And that's what, that is what the software that we're building at the moment, which we are just starting to beta now in Q2 with a select variety of customers, well, that's our sort of focus for the market in in this sort of, quote, boring, but also essentially incredibly useful offering is this idea that we can sort of help make it so that people can build AI models and apply AI processes as easily as you can if you want to create a website with Squarespace. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think you have to be apologetic at all for going a little bit into the technical details, because <laughs> while it may seem, as, as you put it, maybe slightly boring, I think that there's real downstream benefits that, that the general public gets every time this type of, you know, mini revolution happens. It actually reminds me a little bit of what happened in the computer graphics and, you know, like video game world with DirectX, where for many years there were mm-hmm. all these different, like you'd have to have one software library for sound and one for pixel shaders and one for 3D rendering, and all these different elements. And then for better or worse, Microsoft came along, put them all under one roof and made it easy 
for people to focus on just creating their software rather than those low-level kinds of libraries. So it sounds like while the details of this may escape the general populace, there will be industries and businesses and services that pop up because of this democratization that, you know, the everyday person on the street definitely would encounter. Right. And that's 100% the point. So we recently brought into the company this fall a new CTO. His name is Mohammed Farouk, and he came from IBM, where he built sort of a multi-billion dollar cloud business for them. And he really has this very core belief that the democratization of technology is good for everyone, right? And that's about simplifying it, about making it so more people can access the solutions. And then when you have that, then it's like, well, what can you build, right? Like you have so many more options to build something that's really interesting and game-changing than you do when everything is siloed. And right now, you know, we see a lot of these big players, specifically players like Amazon, who want you to do everything on their specific offering set. And, you know, it's plug and play on that set of offerings, everything with AWS. But the problem then is, well, what if you want to include something that is not easily included in AWS offering? Well, that makes it more complicated. That adds build time, that adds development time. I mean, right now to get a model to market, it takes anywhere from six to 12 months. And that requires a number of developers, a number of sort of people who are in that it's called model ops, right? So there's like DevOps and model ops and all of those people working together. And, and that just takes up such a massive amount of time and energy. And the idea is what happens if you can simplify that in the same way that that sort of a Squarespace or, or any other solution was able to simplify that process and then sort of reallocate efforts, people, technology, talent onto, onto other problems and, and you're, you're able to scale much faster. Yeah, absolutely. Are these machines and this software, is it taking away like more of the tedious work behind this process and allowing humans to sort of do bigger picture things? Yeah, it sounds a little bit like the it's cutting out the startup time. Like if you were to try and get something, you know, you referred to it just then in the six to 12 months, but this idea that, you know, it's like you want to drive around the racetrack. And it used to be that, well, first you must invent the wheel and then build an engine and then like figure out how to refine gasoline. But now they're saying, no, you can rent a car and focus on being a driver if, if you right. forgive that heavy handed metaphor. That is exactly the way to think about it, right? A little bit heavy handed and we won't be there right away. But I think that's the goal in the long run, right? Is this idea that we don't need another AI tool. We don't need another API. We have so many of those. What we need is actually a platform that is open, that connects these different services, that connects them across um, cloud providers, that connects it across edge scenarios so that we actually have, we have a better operating system for everyone that allows you to really use what you want when you want it for the purpose that you want it. And that is going to mean that lots of people have the ability to really think on like building interesting models, creating better machine learning scenarios, developing tools that are really necessary to sort of like move humanity forward, right? It was so much of that time is spent working on tedious projects. And I mean, right now there's, there was a report out by Deloitte in December and it was saying that the average AI team can only build and deploy at best two models a year. And so that's not very many, right? And if right. we really want scale, we're going to need to be able to improve that rate of return on, on the time to actually build and deploy. And 
the foundation for that is having sort of this better, you know, road system, this better pipe system, sort of this utilities platform that connects all of these services. Yeah. And allows you to be reactive, you know, as, as data streams come in to be able to interact with them while they're still relevant rather than than having that kind of lead time. Right. That all sounds super exciting. Uh, you mentioned machine learning there, and maybe we should pivot a little bit to that. I suppose for our listeners, if anyone's unfamiliar, I will give you the very back of the napkin idea of machine learning, where if you think of AI as a series of algorithms, ways that we're telling a computer to behave under certain situations, how to make decisions in those situations, machine learning is a way to, instead of writing that algorithm directly, we give it mountains of data to analyze. And from that, it susses out relationships that it can make algorithms out of. So I would ask you, Christina, to first tell me if I'm totally off the mark on that. I hope not, because we, we did make an explainer video about it. Um, <laughs> but the other thing, more, more importantly, how is machine learning really changing the game? You know, what's the significance of this? And from your perspective, um, you know, what's in the future um, and how is it changing everything? Well, you did a really good job sharing your definitions. I thought you were then going to ask me what machine learning was. And I was like, well, you did a really good job. <laughs> A plus. So I think the interesting thing about machine learning is finding connections that maybe we just wouldn't have found on our own, right? Mm -hmm. And every all data is impacted by bias. We choose certain data to collect. We then ask certain questions of that data. And if we sort of have much bigger data sets, right? Taking in all of the data we can possibly get. And then we actually ask a computer to sort of understand that data and then tell us things based on it. The hope is that it removes some of that bias and that we start to learn and make connections to information that maybe we wouldn't have seen before, that we wouldn't have assumed before, that we wouldn't have necessarily seen as correlations before. And, and that's kind of the basic part of it. Um, I think right now, largely, there's also like a broad consumer misunderstanding about machine learning and artificial intelligence. Right now, basically, everything that we're looking at is machine learning. And it is defined as AI. Real artificial intelligence is something that we are still, I don't want to I always want to say we're still really far. And then, you know, two months from now, fair. so I'm no, told I, we're going to be really no, wrong. No, 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 no. I, I believe we're really uh, far uh, away from, yeah. from having sort of true AI capabilities. And instead... No, I'm so glad yes. that you're saying that because that's why we wanted to have you on because there is a <laughs> lot of, there's a lot of misconception out there about what AI is versus what machine learning is. And I'm really mm -hmm. glad you said it because that is sort of what we're trying to get down to here. Yeah, there is. Oh, I could talk about this all day. I mean, we yeah. have basically been sold a great marketing story, right? right? Which is that a lot of these things are artificial intelligence, which we have then, like we've used pronouns with, right? So mm -hmm. we're like, we have made it sound as if the computers are, are sentient, are making actions. And all of that is marketing around it, right? Or sort of language that we're using to discuss what, what largely is machine learning. And I think part of that was done to make it seem cool. I think part of that was done by companies and sort of technology leaders who were like... And the, and the media, we'll say it. Right, the media. Right. And the media. Oh, yeah. You don't, want to, yeah. you don't want to criticize your host while they're in, you're in their house. But yes, I mean, no, 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 no. You know, we've yeah, taken well, it so far. And then 
And then we Hollywoodized. That's not yeah. a real word, but I'm going to pretend it is. No, no that's everything. a word. We like that word. <laughs> um, everything about it, right? And so yeah. we we look at different organizations who are making these horrific predictions about the future with AI. These sort of, right. you know, we're looking at, you know, there are techno optimists who are like, oh, there will be this sort of great integration between AI and humanity. And then I think there's a lot of like techno pessimists like Elon Musk who are like, humanity is going to kill us or AI is going to kill off humanity. <laughs> you know, and I think a lot of those techno pessimist arguments really pushed people into the spotlight and gave a lot of sort of these technologists a platform mm-hmm. to rally around. And, mm-hmm. and I think they used fear to push their agenda. That, that I think is really interesting. And we actually, I had actually put it in the notes to, to ask you about, let's examine that a little bit more. You know, as you said, we are at the moment far away, but I feel like a general AI, as we might term it, is is going to be a decade away until it's invented tomorrow. You know, like it's going to be this sort of long, maybe we'll get their research until someone cracks that that code, right. but uh, forgive the pun. But well, I'll put it this way. Elon Musk had suggested that a powerful AI is a bigger risk than nuclear weapons. Now, I'm not sure that I share that view, but certainly it is trying to state that this is an existential threat to humanity. Do you think that there's an, a place in our culture for regulation of AIs, given that they could have unintended consequences? So I am going to take like an extreme position on this. And I think that we have for a very long time let the technology industry dictate social policy and technology policy in America. And what that means is that we have had a bunch of companies in pursuit of profits drive a technology agenda for our country. And what that has resulted in, I think we have seen, is um, a relatively horrible social media climate, um, an increasing use of uh, cyber weaponization of the internet. Mm -hmm. We have seen a destabilization of many of the industries that have been routinely attacked by cyber attacks from other nations and sort of poor responses from the government. And I think we have this rising threat around artificial intelligence. And so... What I actually think is that we need to take sort of a greater national stance on how we want to incorporate technology in our lives. Technology doesn't need to dictate the future of our society, but it will in a vacuum because technologists are on the cutting edge, right? They are sort of leading an agenda that suits their academic interests or their beliefs. Correlative to this example is how much work there's done about um, anti-aging, right? Or sort of not aging. I'm sure you've heard the stories about like yes. young blood or all of the mm-hmm. vitamins or sort mm-hmm. of, you know, all yeah, of yeah, the, yeah. right? Like all yeah. of this work around, you know, keep, can, can my money living. cheat the reaper? Right, exactly. Like, you know, can you live forever? And it's like, is this, is that technology agenda actually in service of our society? And I think there's a lot of reasons for that that probably at its base go back to sort of people's views around the role of the individual and sort of, you know, whether or not they want to play God. I think there's a lot of those sort of questions that fall into that place. But there's been a huge amount of money and time sort of thrown at those industries. And the question is, should there be? 
Like, is that really where we want our money to go to? And I bring this up in relationship to artificial intelligence, because when we look at a country like, say, China, which regardless of how we feel about China or what China's doing, they have a very specific long-term technology policy in service of developing artificial intelligence. And they will probably get there for us because they have enlisted and and have small ownership or large ownership in so many technology companies that are marching against that objective. Mm-hmm. But they will get there first in all likelihood if we don't take a more engaged role as a society and as citizens in the future that we actually want to achieve. And so I bring that up because... I do think we have a concern. I do think that sort of artificial super intelligence can be a much more dangerous tool than a nuclear weapon. And that's for like a bunch of different reasons. But I do think whoever develops that tool, whoever develops that artificial super intelligence, that will be impacted by the biases of the society that has developed it. Right. And going back to AI here and, and the machine learning, you know, you brought up China. I think we're all well aware that they are cracking down on, on an ethnic population there using technology. And over the years, there's been a democratic crackdown. Um, and, you know, we're not passing judgment because this is happening all around the world. But now that we're adding machine learning and AI into this equation, and, and it makes sense that our creation you know, this, this next thing that we're pursuing, artificial intelligence, is going to reflect our existence, our history, our way of doing things, our lifestyle. How is there any way for us to avoid that? Because we need to address these things among ourselves before we can not pass them on to our artificial intelligent kin. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I mean, yes. And that metaphor of not passing this on to your artificial intelligence kid feels like really smart, right? I mean, you look at at what happened with Cortana when she was released. I worked at Microsoft at that time. And, you know, it was a day of Cortana being on the internet before she became she, because she's not artificial intelligence, right? Like I want to use that term in quotes, it, or like the computer system that was behind Cortana. software. Yeah. This software became quote racist, right? Yeah, and what that I really remember was, that happening. Right? And what yeah. that really was was like a mimicking back of the language directed, which is us being like, wouldn't it be funny to get her to parrot these really racist things? But that means also that someone thinks these really racist things are funny. And so as we're training technology off everything on the internet, off hundreds of years of literature that has been uploaded, all of that comes with all of the bias of being human. And so in like, we don't have an abstract data set that doesn't come with all of the context of our own sort of failures as humanity. And, um, and so, no, my, I think my answer to your question is no, I don't think that's possible. I think if we make massive shifts in how we view the world and what we want to do, that still impacts all of that because we have objectives and we have aims. I mean, the question is, why are we in, why, why are we moving towards artificial intelligence? Why are we moving towards artificial generalized or super intelligence? Like, like what is behind that? 
well, the response is, well, because we can. Okay, but <laughs> but should we? Is that yeah. what we want? Like we get to make the choices in the technology that we build. We get to legislate that. The argument here is no different than the argument in sort of the nuclear arms race, right? Which is we will build nuclear arms because they have nuclear arms. Well, now we end up with like salt one and two and we have to legislate nuclear arms. And now, you know, we look at a country like Iran who is trying to build nuclear weapons and their argument is the same as our argument was in building them, right? Because we can. And and this sort of technology arms race is no, is no different. And I think it's because it's such an elemental reflection on on being human. Yeah. I think that's how we operate is like, well, we'll do it because we can rather than collectively as a society thinking, is this what we should be doing? Is this where we want to be spending our time and money? And there's amazing things that we can do probably in the future with AI, maybe. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, I, I absolutely agree. And it's really the classic Jurassic Park problem. Your scientists spent so much time wondering if they could that they didn't stop and think if they should. And all of these unintended, unintended consequences. I mean, I personally, I believe for better or worse that it's in human nature to always press the button, so to speak, just to find out what happens. Oh my gosh. But, don't say um, that about the button. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. Well, you know what I'm saying though, pull the, pull the lever, activate the Frankenstein monster. I think that our curiosity um, drives us forward, but also occasionally kills the cat. There's a lot of things um, that we've explored here, and, and thank you so much for your insights about what might go wrong and, and the ways that we should be really thoughtful as we develop these AIs. But as we start to wrap up here, I'm just wondering, what are your greatest visions and dreams for what AI and or machine learning could accomplish that's great? Where, where could we go if everything goes well? You know, we talked a lot about society in this podcast. And I think that machine learning applied to helping understand really what's happening in America, like people's real thoughts and feelings and what they hope for the future of America. Like, I feel like we have so many pundits telling us what America believes and very little understanding of like, what, what is the new American dream? Like, what is this thing that we're all sort of working towards? I think there's something beautiful in that. I mean, I think, you know, even just what we've seen this year in response to COVID, and we've seen so many scientific communities across the world working mm. together, sort of this interesting question of like, okay, if we had more scientific cooperation, if we had fewer moats around technology and more integration, what could we do for climate change? What could we do for various diseases and disease protocols? What could we do to deal with things like um, our food problems, our food waste, and just broader cooperation? And I think there's a lot of things that machine learning techniques and then sort of broader artificial intelligence techniques could do when applied to those scenarios. I think a lot of them are underfunded. I think there's not a lot of money to be made in a lot of these scenarios yet. And so I think we haven't seen as much work there as we want to. I mean, you mentioned something really early in the podcast, right? Which is people using um, machine learning to be able to identify exoplanets, which is like, I think that's super exciting, right? And I think yeah. spaces, you know, I mean, we have so much data 
from space. We have so much data from the ocean. What we really need is ability to crack that data, to ask questions of that data, to explore it. And that goes back to sort of one of the original problems we talked about, right? Which is that it takes sort of the average um, team like six to 12 months to build an AI model. And that means that there's only so many teams doing this work in so many places that can build models. And so as we speed up the ability for people to create models, to ask questions, to solve for those questions, we'll end up with solutions to things. And so I think that's very, very, very positive. And I think I think the turmoil in America right now is positive against this end, because I think we're having to address a lot of sort of the underlying conflicts and problems in America. And that as we solve those, we can also um, sort of create better and more interesting technologies that will ultimately help us create societies that are much closer to the society we want to be part of and we're interested in. And so there's there's so much, there's so much potential. And I am really excited about that, even if I have been a bit of like a techno downer on the call. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're just, we're just being realists, I think. We're techno realists. Yes. But um, yeah. I absolutely share, share your hope for it. And I agree also that the current tur- turmoil can be a chance to examine ourselves, you know, and to see what filth lies under the rug. I guess we have to flip the table and flip the rug and get everything all messed up. But it may, you know, put a very important mirror against society. So I think we can we can probably wrap up there. You know, can I make a plug? I would like of to. Of course. Make, okay, so I have um two sort of books to recommend for people who are maybe interested in learning more about artificial intelligence that I have found really useful in the past couple of years. So one of them is this book. It's called The Big Nine. It's by Amy Webb, and she's a futurist. And The Big Nine talks about sort of the big nine technology companies and the race to artificial intelligence. And she does a really good job talking about sort of the Chinese model and the American model of creating artificial general intelligence and super intelligence. And she does something quite interesting where she actually has these sort of like fictionalized accounts or fictionalized stories within the book that makes it really easy to understand what could happen. And we'll um, we'll put links against this for, for our audience. Oh, awesome. Okay. The other book I really want to recommend is called Possible Minds, 25 Ways of Looking at AI. And it's actually 25 independent chapters and by written by different people. So 25 essays. And it just talks about really different aspects of artificial intelligence and gives you sort of a sampling of of what's going on in the field. And I think that's this kind of a good way if you want to like get your feet wet in some different thinking that you can sort of explore some of what I think are really, really great thinkers. And then final plug, final book is I wrote a chapter in this book called The Future Starts Now. And it is about sort of various futurist scenarios, many of which involve artificial intelligence. So but the future starts now is just an interesting way of looking at sort of various future scenarios, many of which involve artificial intelligence or other forms of emerging technology as you're, you know, sort of digging in and and starting to learn more about this topic. And there's, I think, a huge opportunity for people to talk more about the impacts of artificial intelligence on space that is sort of a, an empty gray space. I don't know a huge amount of people writing about it. Um, and I think a lot of that is sort of 
extrapolating earth-based scenarios and thinking how could they go very wrong or very right as we do break into the next frontier. Excellent. Thanks so much. I'm definitely going to check those out. And for our listeners, we'll put a link uh, next to the podcast so you can look at those as well. So Christina Libby, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really super interesting. And I'm going to be thinking about what we've discussed here for a long time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And to all our listeners, for more great space stories, go to supercluster.com. And remember, as always, space is for everyone. Everyone.